Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Our scripture for today comes from Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. And we'll end with our new liturgy. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, band. Good morning, everybody. hope everybody is hanging in there. Everybody hanging in there? Okay. All right. Good. Um, kiddos, we do have Elevate this morning, so if you would like to head out this back door over here, you can do that. And everybody else can stick around. Um, All right, we are uh, through the month of January. What our typical practice is is to go through some of the spiritual disciplines and talk through those and how do we practice those. And our goal is not to set necessarily resolutions or to set accomplishments for us, although we can. Uh, my pants are a little bit tighter than they were last year, so some of the uh, resolutions can be helpful. But for spiritual practices and all practices, really what we want to do is we want to we set habits uh, what are things that we can begin to do and practice uh, that, uh, uh, yeah, that can impact and change uh, our life? And so this morning, we're actually going to look at the spiritual discipline of study. Uh, so um, I want to start with a uh, story that I thought was funny. Uh, at the turn of the century, 18, 19, uh, 19th to 20th century, so 1800s to 1900s, uh, is when uh, movies began to come on the scene. And we had these motion pictures and silent films. And uh, there was uh, a star that took off around 1914 uh, in, in these silent movies, Sir Charles Spencer Chaplin. And 
He appeared in 40 movies, over 40 movies in 1914. All right? That is a rock star right there. And uh, America caught Charlie Chaplin fever. And it said that there were all of these different contests starting in, in 1915. There began to be all these contests to imitate Char Charlie Chaplin. And, and if, you, if you don't know who he is, he's got the iconic look, right? The top hat, the bushy mustache, uh, the cane, and, and the waddle, right? And he was famous for that. And uh, in fact, there is a picture in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, outside of a theater in Cleveland, Ohio, where uh, a reportedly young Bob Hope had won a Charlie Chaplin imitation contest. Well, as the legend is told, and the good thing about legends is it doesn't really matter if it's true, it's there to teach a point. Uh, as the legend is told, there, there's told of a time where Charlie Chaplin himself was at a fair somewhere in the Americas, and at the fair they had a Charlie Chaplin walking contest where 40-something uh, men entered this contest to see if they could imitate the walk of Charlie Chaplin, and he thought it would be fun to enter it himself. Minus the mustache and the top hat. And this must have been a blow to his ego. Supposedly he came in, depending on various reports, either 20th or 22nd place in the Charlie Chaplin imitation contest. Sometimes it is hard to recognize the real deal. Right? Uh, if you want pure entertainment in our day, I would suggest, I would not suggest to get on Twitter, but I would suggest if you're going to be on Twitter to follow Tony Hawk, uh, the legendary skater Tony Hawk, who tells story after story after story of encounters that he has with people, even he has to, after he have to, has to show them his ID, who will always remark with, man, you know who you look like? And they never believe it's him. Even when they see his ID. Man, that's uncanny. You even have the same name as legendary skater Tony Hawk. <laughs> a, a question, especially in our day. Um, if God, Jesus, the Bible were to show up, I mean, a question that I have often, if Jesus were to show up in our day and were to enter a look-alike contest, would we recognize him? Would we know which one is the real Jesus? Uh, I heard over and over and over again growing up, and, and if you grew up in a, in a conservative Christian church, you, you probably heard this too. Well, mostly if you grew up with a youth minister, you probably heard this too. Uh, how, you can probably, you can probably uh, finish this. How can you know that 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 you know that, that you're saved? Right? That was the end of that question. How can you know that you know that you know that you're saved? And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't even know if that's the right question. Sometimes I don't think that's the right question. I think a better question might be, how can you know that you know that you know, fill in however many you want, depending on your emphasis, uh, that you know Jesus, that you know, like, the real Jesus. Not that you're religious, not that you're on the right side of anything, but how do we know that we actually know, have come to know and trust Jesus. Um, Matthew 7 tells a very troubling story 
uh, about a man who comes up to Jesus and says, as many will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not accomplish all these great things in your name? Didn't I, we cast out demons in your name, we healed people in your name. And you remember what Jesus says to him? Who are you? I don't know you. That first, no matter how many times you read that, that first ought to go, uh, it ought to make our stomach drop a little bit. But then it ought to comfort us at some level, maybe, or convict us. Can you imagine standing before the creator and savior of the world and telling him what you've done? Philippians 2. Philippians 2 tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And in the Greek, every knee means every knee. That one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So one day we will all know who Jesus is. Some will bow with awe and wonder. Some will bow with bitterness and resentment. Some may bow with, Jesus, didn't I cast out all these people? Didn't I win doctrinal battles in your name? Jesus, didn't I own the libs in your name? Didn't I win that Twitter battle in your name? And Jesus may go, I'm sorry, you don't look familiar. And I'm sure there will be some that bow and go, well, actually, Jesus. God's desire, this is what distinguishes the God of Scripture from all other gods in history. His desire is not simply that we follow the rules. This is not to diminish obedience or, or doctrine or any of those things. But every God in history, every other deity in history says, follow these rules. This is what you do and this is what you don't do. God desires that we know him. And since that is his desire, he has made himself known to us. And it's not simply a matter of do these things and don't do these things. It is a matter of knowing. And so this morning we're going to look at the spiritual practice of study and why it's important. Especially when we live in such a confusing and polarized world where everybody seems to speak for God. Right? We've just ditched the whole, like, we're all speaking for God now. Even atheists are speaking for God. On both sides! <laughs> okay. Stay off, stay off the computer. Stay off the internet if you don't want to get grossly confused. Um, and so here's what I want to do. I want to spend the first part of our sermon, and the most part of our sermon, dealing with our motives. What are, what are our motives of study? How do we approach God in this idea of study? And then the last part, I want to be very, very practical, and I hope it's practical and helpful to give some guidance on how do we read the Bible. And as we read Scripture, not only uh, how do we know the Bible, but how then do we also take that and relate it to the world around us? Um, so, uh, there are, here's the deal. Uh, before, we, like, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you, I know. I know Here's what I know. I know God has revealed himself. I will doubt me over and over and over again. I will not doubt him. Um, the reason people didn't recognize Charlie Chaplin and the reason people still don't recognize Tony Hawk is not because they haven't studied them. It's not because they haven't watched highlights. It's not because they haven't seen them on TV. They have, but they don't know them. They know about them. They've seen highlights. Trusting God doesn't necessarily require that you take a Greek class, I hope. It doesn't require that you have a PhD, I, there again, I hope. Um, 
It requires a humble spirit that enjoys an intimate, worshipful relationship with the creator and savior of the universe. Time, intimacy, engagement. This is what creates true relational knowledge. And this, when we read scripture, that seems to be what God wants from his people. Okay? We all on the same page there? All right, let's go. So here's the three things we're going to look at, basically. Awareness, humility, and practice. Um, so first, let's look, up, uh, let's look at awareness. Proverbs 9 gives us two different dinner scenes. It, it, it begins and ends the chapter with two different dinner scenes. Uh, and if you notice, it, it's woman wisdom and woman folly. And um, <clears throat> the invites go out from the highest places in town. So the invites go out from, both from the same places. Uh, and they go out to dine with Lady Wisdom or to dine with Lady Folly. The invites also go out to the same groups of people. It's not one goes out to the righteous and one goes out to the wicked. The invites go to anyone who is walking along the way and, praise God, they go out to those who lack sense. Let the simple turn in here. That is great news for all of us, all right? So the invite to dine is not this elitist, you have to know these things. It, it, is, it, it goes out to everyone. Now, Proverbs itself is a book of wisdom. It's a book of wise sayings. It's a collection of sayings. And it was often used in the Old Testament for fathers training their sons or, or like in a church group to train young teenagers. So the, the image here of those who lack sense is really the image of young boys who are beginning their journey into life. And if you read the Proverbs, you'll see over and over and over again how often Solomon says, you know, trade everything you have for wisdom. Pursue wisdom like you would pursue a woman. Go after wisdom with everything that you have. And so here, this painting the picture for those who are getting ready to set out on their journey is where will you feast? And we can broaden that out. This is really, this is now for all of us um, who are on this journey, where do we find our spiritual nourishment? What do we feast on? What do we use to grow our mind and our soul and our, and our thoughts? How do we navigate the world around us? Do we just do this and stick our finger in the, in the wind and see which way the cultural wind is blowing? Well, that's probably right then. We should go that way. If you've studied history at all, you will know often very powerful cultures have been wrong. So how do we do it? Do we just follow the way? Or do we, do we develop a theology out of bitterness and fear and anger towards somebody else? The picture that's painted here is where do we feast regularly? There is a feast <clears throat> that is prepared by the one who built and designed and forged and fashioned the universe, the way things that should go, and it is good, and it is healthy, and it leads to life. And then there is a feast that is very appealing. It's stolen, it's fast food, it's quick, it's easy, it's the path of least resistance, it appeals to everything now, and it leads to death. Woman wisdom here is, wisdom is personified in the Old Testament. It's actually the picture of Jesus, Christ our wisdom. That's a shortcut. I could take a whole lot longer to get there. I'm just going to take 
I'm going to ask you to take my word for that, okay? This is, an, this is the image of Jesus uh, through the Hebrew Scriptures. Christ, our wisdom. And we're told that this is the one who has built her house. Jesus is the one that we see revealed in the New Testament. He is the one that has formed and fashioned the world. He has designed us and the way that we should be. Uh, and when we dine with him, we're not just learning what to do and what not to do. We're, we're learning what is good, why it is good, what we are called to. Sorry. Um, we are learn, we, we're learning like how the world was made and how we operate in it. What's good for us? What is best for us? What controls us? It creates in us an awareness, not only awareness of God and the way he's made the world to be, but also our temptations. I've said this a million times, but I, it's still helpful for me. The relation of the, 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 the idea of sin is not just Sin uh, is not God the cosmic killjoy, and he only puts things that, that, uh, you know, that we don't want to do. The, the, how sin manifests is if God were to say, I want you to eat ice cream for every meal, we would go, oh, every meal. Come on. Can I have a break from ice cream? The nature of sin is our resistance to what God made good, not God being the cosmic killjoy. And so to sit and feast here is to feast on what God made good. And to know that. And sometimes it's good for us, and we enjoy it, and it's good. People learn to like broccoli. And sometimes it's hard, and we've got to trust that it's good. Um, Tim Keller always said, if you're going to have any wisdom at all, I, I love this statement, if you're going to have any wisdom at all, you need to know two things. One, that the world was created. It's designed. That God made the world. There is a way that things should work. There's a way we should work. There's a way... Everything, uh, economy and relationship and love and power and desire and righteousness, there's a way, and justice, there's a way all of those things should work in the world. They were designed and created by God, and it was designed to be good. And if we're going to gain wisdom, we need to know that we're not just random. There is a way things ought to be. But... We also need to know that Genesis 3 exists in the Bible, and the world is broken. Sin entered the world. It distorted all of these things. It distorted justice. It distorted desire. It distorted love. It distorted relationships and all of these things. And we have to know that the world is also broken by sin and rebellion. And so it is created and designed, but it's broken. And so A plus B doesn't always equal C. If you were raised with a Christian idea or mindset of if you do these things, and don't do these things, then your life should be great, right? I was a youth minister for a while. I'm going to tell you right now, every parent that came up to me with concerns, there were lots of parents that were encouraging, but everyone that came up to me with concerns, it seemed to be if you can get my kid to 18 and keep them out of trouble, I know that they will then have a great life after that. I didn't have kids yet, but I could almost promise them that that's probably not true. Listen, God is not a formula to be figured out. He's not a mathematical formula to apply. He is a God to know and trust on the good days and on the bad days. And sometimes we do everything right and things still turn out bad or hard, but 
when we dine at the Feast of Woman Wisdom, we know that God is at work. <clears throat> one day, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have hope with faith in Christ that one day all things will be made right and whole. See, almost like on... All right. Even you and me. The grand narrative that we share every Sunday when we got up this morning and talked, when Garth shared this morning, we believe this to be the ultimate truth, the way the world was made, the world is designed, the way it works, God made it good, and then it was broken, and then in the brokenness, we are all looking for ways of salvation, ways to fix it, ways to cope, ways to get through. Um, we've all had something that we have lost. If you step back and look at humanity, you can see we, there's something we had that we've lost, and we're all trying desperately to find it. Uh, I found the, the, a great quote um, it's often attributed to G.K. Chesterton, uh, but it's actually in a, in a book written by Bruce Marshall called The World, the Flesh, and Father Smith. Uh, and I'm going to confess that I have not read this book, though I want to now. Um, apparently, this is a very good picture of Proverbs 9. Father Smith, the priest, is walking along the way when he is tempted by a scantily clad woman who mocks him and makes fun of him, asks questions about how in the world priests could live without us, and Father Smith contends that even at its most perfect, simply, simply worshiping a woman, and that relationship is a poor substitute for walking with God in friendship. And the woman judges that Father Smith's answers prove what she had always maintained about Christians, that religion is only a substitute for sex. And Father Smith counters roundly and says, I still prefer to believe that sex is a substitute for religion, and that the young man who rings the bell at the brothel consciously or unconsciously, is looking for God. Our hearts are made to worship. We make substitutes for God often. We seek to fix our world. We seek to address our brokenness, tell others we're okay, try desperately to find out and make meaning out of life. And with all of this, we are still invited to sit and feast at the table of the creator of the universe, to learn, to grow to know him, the world, the law, the way we were made, the way we were designed, our desires, misplaced and well-placed. To learn true and ultimate good. And the invitation is not for those who have it together. The invitation is for those who are simple and lack sense. So when we study, we bring all of this to the table. We bring all of this into glorious conflict with God on his throne, the creation of the world, we bring it in touch with the sinfulness of the world, the command to love our Lord, our, the love Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the tension that that sometimes creates between that and loving our neighbor. And what does that look like? The tension of righteousness and justice, sitting with wisdom, not just what we should or shouldn't do, but reading and studying our Bibles to understand how God has acted in history, his creation, the world's brokenness. How do we navigate a very gray world that wants to make everything black and white until it is black and white and a world that wants to make it gray? We're called to be aware of this, all of this, and our response to this is to be aware. Am I feasting at the table of woman wisdom or am I taking something that's cheap and easy and path of least resistance, and dining with woman folly. All right, if we get back to the text, 
the middle section here points us toward humility. Verse 7 says this, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. And I want to focus on this last one here, bringing all of this together. If you are wise... You are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. Sometimes uh, if, if you meet somebody who is very, very smart in one area of life, oftentimes they tend to think that they are very, very smart in every area of life. Anybody have this person in mind, Neil deGrasse Tyson? Funny you mention him uh, because I had him in mind as well. Uh, my favorite example, the famous astrophysicist, uh, who often tweets his opinions that are quite amusing. Uh, and one time he tweeted, this is one of my favorites, how leap day is misnamed. We are not leaping anywhere. The calendar is simply and abruptly catching up with the Earth's orbit. To which one person rep rep uh, responded, if only we had a word that meant a sudden and abrupt lurch forward. <laughs> Proverbs, Proverbs doesn't necessarily paint a right and wrong as if there is, there is um, as if our opinions are either, it's either this or this, it's either right or wrong. Proverbs often paints a heart that is either wise or foolish. Here, either the scoffer or the wise man. Um, this sadly is the case, people that are smart in one area, this is sadly the case with a whole lot of people who have studied the Bible a lot. Scholars, uh, where studying the Bible has ironically filled them with a sense of pride. Being knowledgeable about the Bible, the temptation then is to fill us with a sense of pride. But I want to tell you that to study and learn more, not simply about the Bible, but the God to which the Bible makes known to us, ought to not fill us with pride, it ought to fill us with humility. It ought to remind us page after page after page after page, I'm not God. The study of the world and God's movement within the world ought to war against our pride, to remind us how small we are. As the psalmist said, who is man that you're even mindful of him? And that we are able to, when we are wise, that we actually stand before God with grace and understanding and humility. Um, this is something that, that last line can be confusing. If you're, if you're wise, it benefits you. And if you're, fooly, if you're foolish, uh, 
uh, you, bear, you alone bear it. Um, and this is something I think is important as we step out here. The beginning of wisdom is what, class? You remember? Fear of the Lord. All right, this is not being scared of God. This is fear that creates wisdom. If you were standing in front of a minefield, all right, yes, there would be some, you'd be scared probably. But appropriate fear says, I don't just run through this carelessly. Appropriate fear says, I better step wisely. Right? This is a good fear. It's a fear that is awe and respect. It produces wisdom. A proper fear produces wisdom. But this has also given me a great freedom as well as a greater responsibility when I can remember this. Uh, Okay. You and I will stand before God with our convictions and our positions and our decisions. Here's what I mean by that. If you look up at me and you're like, uh, you're a pastor, you're part of the patriarchy, you're whatever, you are, you are trying to manipulate, manipulate us, uh, you're trying to deceive us, you're part of the conspiracy, you're part of the whatever. Um, Hebrews 13, 17, just to give you some comfort, Hebrews 13, 17 tells of me that one day I will stand before God as one who has to give an account on how I did up here. I will stand before the ultimate judge. Um, I will stand before the ultimate judge not only in the positions that I hold, but how I hold them. That tension between loving God and loving people and doing that well. Uh... I will stand before God, and I will stand accountable on how I taught those things. If I taught right things, but hold them in prideful ways, or if I stood up here and like, you know what, you guys just sin, it's all good, God loves us. Just go do what you feel. I will stand accountable. So when it comes to my conviction, and I'm going to get to this, so will you. Uh, But when it comes to my convictions, as I read scripture, as I hold these positions, as I lean on uh, people in history and positions uh, in history and navigating the present world that we're in, regarding, you name it, politics, sexuality, vaccines, abortion, racial and economic justice, on and on and on and on and on, for me to study and truly form wisdom, I need to remember that I will ultimately not stand accountable before you for what I preach and teach. I will not stand accountable before the right or the left. I will not stand accountable before a a, a MAGA crowd or a cancel culture mob. I will stand accountable before God. And so my motive can't be to try to please or appease man. I will stand before the God who will comfort me when my side of the story is not always heard or vindicated. I have a great defender on that one that I forfeit when I take it on myself. I will stand before God who will judge me rightly when I'm overreacting. I will stand before God who will resist the proud but give grace to the humble. I will stand before the God who will carry, not, who will carry out ultimate justice and vengeance so that I can actually be freed to forgive I will stand before the God who knows the hurts and wounds of my own soul as well as the hurts and wounds of others, the bullies and the victims, the perpetrators uh, and the oppressed, and he will judge perfectly and rightly. 
When we study, when we feast, we need to be aware of who is at war for our affections and our loyalty. And I will tell you right now, the enemy doesn't care what you believe if he can get you to believe it in a prideful way. That we would hold our doctrine firmly but humbly and still be shaped and formed by humility and wisdom. I will stand before God and so will you. And here's what's good on that. This is hard because, because conversely, you will stand before God for the way that you believe and think and practice what you see revealed in Scripture. You will not stand before me. Sometimes that frustrates me. Most of the time it's freeing, but sometimes I would like to have a word. That's an honest confession. As a confession, it is really, it is painfully easy for me to get into the position of scoffer. It's painfully easy for me to get there. Um, I always, I think about this often, and Darden, I should probably tell you more. When Darden told me one time, you, you know, you're not that easy to agree with, which I questioned. <laughs> Um, did I say disagree? You're not easy to disagree with. Isn't that what? Which I, yeah, I know. But it still gets me. Um, listen, I'm not bigly wise, but I'm wise enough to know that, that, that it's not a good place for me to be and it's not a good place for my heart to be. I, I, I hate who I become when I move into the position of scoffer. And as, a, as an encouragement to you as the church here, uh, your elders saw this happening in me over the past couple of years and, and called me to account. Um, the laws between the line between prophetic personality and scoffer can be a fine one, um, and they called me to account on that. They could see that I was tired, uh, and and they gave me some rest and some time off. And while they rested, while I rested, they took my social media passwords, which I gave freely. It was good. I gave them willfully, but it was a good thing. And I'm grateful uh, to each of these guys that I get to serve alongside with. And I'm grateful that they called me out on that. And I'm grateful that they saw it gently uh, and lovingly. Know where we sit, where we dine, where we feast. Be aware of our surroundings. What are we feasting on? But also know our own heart. Am I in the position of being wise when I'm corrected? Or am I in the position of being a scoffer? It's easy to get in. And here's what's hard is you can be right and be a scoffer. In fact, oftentimes when you're right is when that makes it easier to become a scoffer. So the last one, I'm going to wrap up with some very practical stuff of the how-to's when it comes to studying scripture. How do we practice this awareness and this humility as we study scripture and we study ourselves and we study the world around us? Um, reading the Bible can be daunting uh, and there are, a few, there, are, there are a few different ways to approach. First of all, if you are new to reading scripture, I'm just gonna give you some very practical ways of how to study scripture and how that then gives us eyes to see the world around us. Um, this is nothing new, we've done this before. Uh, so, but, but hopefully we'll, we'll get some more insight. First of all, don't go in and go, okay, I need to become an expert in the Bible. Um, this book is big. It's got different genres. Uh, we can't even figure out where to put it in like a book category. Is it, what, what is this? Is it poetry? Is it history? Is it philosophy? Is it 
you know, uh, where does this go? And so they had to create a whole new, it's religion, all right? Let me give you some purposes. The Bible is not basic instructions before leaving earth, okay? This is not a list of to-dos and don'ts. This is the story of God. This is the picture. This is the dining table of woman wisdom made up of who God is and what he has done. There are a ton of incredible resources out there to be able to read, or if reading's not their, your thing, there, there are videos to watch now. This is an uh, amazing time. Uh, the Bible Project has amazing videos on every book of the Bible that will give you the history and background, uh, and they are good for adults and kids. Uh, they are phenomenal, and they'll give you a little five-minute, eight-minute history of what's going on in this book, which I think is very important. Um, the setting in the background. Uh, there's also a tremendous resource called the Bible Recap. Uh, this has a reading plan, um, and it also has a daily podcast that gives you a little five to eight minute review of what you just read, which if you're going in the prophets, man, take advantage of that. Prophets don't make any sense. You're just like, don't know what's going on. Oh, they're angry. There's not a story really to follow, um, but it's what they're angry about, what's happening the warnings they're giving, but then the comfort they're giving. So that's a helpful thing. Um, a couple things to keep in mind when reading a Bible. Notice we didn't do this like on January 1st, which this, because I think that's good. Um, but a couple of things before you actually endeavor to read the Bible. First, I would say have a plan, but have a plan but don't think that the way of righteousness is reading through the Bible in a year. You will not find reading through the Bible in a year in your Bible. Read through the Bible. That's what's critical. Um, learn how to read the Bible. Do have a plan. Have a plan that's doable. Um, it doesn't necessarily even have to be time-focused. Uh, I did one a couple years ago of reading through the Bible in two years. And that was great. Um, or another way you can do it is have a book that you're focusing on. You can even say, this month, I'm going to focus on this. Or don't even put a time frame on it. I'm going to start. If you've never read your Bible before and you want to learn, start in 1 John and read 1 John. Read it all out loud in one setting. What is John telling me? And then learn how to ask the questions. We're going to go, out, go through here in just a second. Um, read the Bible. I will encourage that. Don't put, the, don't put the frame of, I have to read the Bible in a year, okay? I know people, I'm related to people, that have read through the Bible in a year for 20 years in a row, and their Bible knowledge is low. The Bible is not something to be accomplished. This is a God to be engaged with and known and loved, okay? So that's the first. Second, um, and this, this is critical, Bible before tech. I will advocate for this. I will, I will advocate for some kind of meditation, if not full out reading your Bible in the morning. Um, and you can, you can say, well, I'm not a morning person. And that, I'd probably argue with you now. I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't used to argue with you, but I probably would now. I'm older, though. Um, Bible before tech. Uh, James Early has a great word on this in the, his book, The Common Rule. 
Um, every day we start up, when we, wake up, when we wake up, we take in information. How many of you, you don't have to show your hands, how many of you, the first thing you do in the morning is check your phone? If you want to raise your hand, you can, because confession's good for the soul. Uh, right? This was his word. When we start off our day, we start off our day with really what table we're going to feast at that day, who we are going to bow down to that day. When we start off our day with work emails uh, and checking our phones, we start off with the need to justify our existence. This is why I'm important, or this is who I need to please today to make sure that I'm accepted. If we start off the morning with the news, we tend to start off the day with anger and fear that seats us firmly in the position of general manager of the universe, and now it's up to me to solve the world's problems or to be angry at everybody who's causing the world's problems. Definitely not me, though. When we start off the morning with social media, we appeal to our vanity or envy. How we do or do not have the good life according to what, who others do and don't have. How come everybody is always at the beach? Why aren't we always at the beach? When we start with scripture, with this practice and this habit, we could put God firmly in charge of the story and we put us firmly in the story. That the world is broken and that God is on his throne. And then as that gets established, that habit and that practice, then we can start to approach the news and work emails and the lives of our friends and followers in a healthy, healthier place. Finally, so th those, are the, those are the two things that I would advocate for. Bible before tech and, and have a plan. Don't just open, don't ever do this. Don't ever do this. This is the word for me today, okay? Have a plan to approach the Bible. And here's why. This is how to read the Bible. This is from Zach Eswine. I think this gives us some really great questions as we read. Uh, we've done this before. We have little cards. Maybe we can have those out next week. I forgot to get them printed. Um, so uh, Tracy... Tracy, I'm, I'm going to look at you. Can we print those? They're already on the connections table, guys. You didn't need me to tell you that. I'm sure everybody already knew that. Um, here's the questions we ask. First, the question we ask when we read the Bible, what is being made known about God? We don't open the Bible and say, what are you saying to me? The Bible is written in a time, in a place, to a people. And it reveals something about God. So the first question we ask is, what's being made known about God? And what's being made known to this people in this context? This helps us to understand that the Bible is written in a context. It's written in time and history. For example, if you read 1 Peter, 1 Peter is written to, to know the setting of 1 Peter, it's written to a people that are marginalized and pushed to the side and, and being persecuted. And if we read 1 Peter, uh, where he is encouraging them to hang in there, and we go, but Peter, man, they're threatening to take away our tax exemption, Peter. If you can hear back from Peter, wait a minute. You don't have to pay taxes because you're a Christian? That's uh, got nothing to do with this book. <laughs> That's a far cry from where we're at right now. I think Peter would be like, what happened? We approach Peter, not from our modern day terms, but the context that he, he wrote in. 
And then we also want to ask, what's going on that they need to know this about God? In Exodus, God's people need to know that God is more powerful than the Egyptians' God and that, that he will free them. They can trust him to walk through the water. So he makes himself known by systematically defeating each idol in this wave of, of, uh, of plagues. Was, wraths was the word coming to my mind. In this wave of plagues that God makes known each one of the Egyptian gods all the way up to the bright and morning star and says, I am more powerful than all of them and I'm going to mock and embarrass their gods to demonstrate to you, my people, that you can trust me and follow me. In Paul's letters, it gets a little bit different. They need to know that Jesus uh, fulfilled the commands of the Torah and that there are false teachers trying to either put on Gentiles the weight of the law or false Gentiles teachers saying, ah, you don't need to do this. Let's bring this more back into the context that we understand. And Paul is writing to them to say, no, not over here, and no, 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 not over here. And then the question we can ask about them, is God revealing a sin that these people need to repent of, which is the turn from your wicked ways? Is God revealing a truth about himself that these people need to learn and understand? Where God makes known in Exodus, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Is God bringing healing or his presence to a wound or fear that his people may have, to remind them that he is with them, saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you, or in that day, passages. Is God revealing an inconsistency between their belief and their practice, where they say one thing and do another? Your mouths, you worship me with your mouths, but your hearts are far from me. And then the next question we ask is, what do I have in common with these people? These are on these cards, so I'm kind of going through them quick. There are a lot of things that are different, uh, and yet same, there's also nothing new under the sun. The human heart, we're using different toys, but a lot of us are doing the same thing. And a good question on this for ourselves is my, to, when we read these stories, who do I identify with most in this story? And be careful, if you're always identifying with God or you're always identifying with Jesus in a story, chances are good you're not reading it right, okay? Who do I identify with most in this story? The rebellious people of Israel, the wounded sinner, the prideful religious leader, the torn people of Ephesus between the pagan God and then actually believing and holding to this faith. What do I have in common with these people? And then finally, the last question to ask, what do I need to hear from this passage? So we don't start with that. We don't open the Bible and say, what do I need to hear from the Bible today? We get there by identifying with who the Bible was written to, why it was written to them, and then we go, okay, now, what do I need to hear? What do I have in common with them? Then what do I need to hear? Now, there are psalms and poetry books and prayers that we can read straight out, meditate on, let them drip over us. But even there, the more we know and understand the context, they can become more and more rich. The goal of reading Scripture is not to become a scholar. The goal of reading Scripture is to know and trust Jesus, and then to let that, where actually we become uh, the, the, the ladies on the high places calling out and inviting people to feast and dine with woman wisdom. And when we get to that last question, what do I need to hear from that passage? We can ask those same questions that we ask of the people. What sin do I, is this revealing that I need to repent of? What wound is this revealing that I need healing from, that I've not trusted God with, or that I just need to know that God is present? Um, what, uh, what is something that God is revealing about himself that I need to know and I need to trust? Logically, emotionally, spiritually. 
or what inconsistencies are prevalent in my life? Am I talking with anger and bitterness about, about how much we just need to love people? <laughs> or am I preaching God's grace and mercy to sinners with absolute judgment and guile? God wants to be known. Study is more than just accumulating knowledge. It's growing in wisdom and trust and faith. We cannot and will not know everything about God. That's a glorious freedom because we are limited. We're invited to dive deep. We are invited to feast at the table of woman wisdom. To know together with all the Lord's holy people and to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Study is not just about getting smart. Study is about growing and building this relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you have made this available. You've made yourself known. And that study can be a, a weird word. It can be an academic word that we put on here. But really, to study is, as we're going to learn about the next few weeks, to meditate, to pray, to see uh, you and what you've made known. And so I pray that um, you would humble our hearts, you would reveal to us when we walk in the way of the scoffer that you would... Uh, that you would invite us and that we would respond joyfully and faithfully, even when it's hard and, and even when it's good, that we would sit and feast at the table of woman wisdom, knowing uh, you as you've made yourself known in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.